Section 14 of the Underground Railroad, Part 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Sherry Jordan. The Underground Railroad, Part 1, by William Still. Section 14, Sheridan Ford, Joseph Neeland. Sheridan Ford, secreted in the woods, escapes in a steamer. About the 29th of January, 1855, Sheridan arrived from the Old Dominion in a life of bondage, and was welcomed cordially by the Vigilance Committee. Miss Elizabeth Brown of Portsmouth, Virginia, claimed Sheridan as her property. He spoke rather kindly of her, and felt that he had not been used very hard as a general thing, although, he wisely added, the best usage was bad enough. Sheridan had nearly reached his twenty-eighth year, was tall and well-made, and possessed of a considerable share of intelligence. Not a great while before making up his mind to escape, for some trifling offense he had been stretched up with the rope by his hands and whipped unmercifully. In addition to this he had got wind of the fact that he was to be auctioneered off. Soon these things brought serious reflections to Sheridan's mind, and among other questions he began to ponder how he could get a ticket on the UGRR and get out of this place of torment to where he might have the benefit of his own labor. In this state of mind, about the fourteenth day of November, he took his first and daring step. He went not, however, to learn lawyers or able ministers of the gospel in his distress and trouble, but wended his way directly to the woods, where he felt that he would be safer with the wild animals and reptiles in solitude than with the barbarous civilization that existed in Portsmouth. The first day in the woods he passed in prayer incessantly, all alone. In this particular place of seclusion he remained four days and nights. Two days suffered severely from hunger, cold, and thirst. However, one who was a friend to him, and knew of his whereabouts, managed to get some food to him and consoling words. But at the end of the four days this friend got into some difficulty, and thus Sheridan was left to wade through deep waters and headwinds, in an almost hopeless state. There he could not consent to stay and starve to death. Accordingly, he left and found another place of seclusion, with a friend in the town, for a pecuniary consideration. A secret passage was procured for him on one of the steamers running between Philadelphia and Richmond, Virginia. When he left his poor wife Julia, she was then lying in prison to be sold, on the simple charge of having been suspected of conniving at her husband's escape. As a woman, she had known something of the barbarism of slavery, from everyday experience, which the large scars about her head indicated, according to Sheridan's testimony. She was the mother of two children, but had never been allowed to have the care of either of them. The husband, utterly powerless to offer her the least sympathy in word or deed, left this dark habitation of cruelty, as above referred to, with no hope of ever seeing wife or child again in this world. The committee afforded him the usual aid and comfort, and passed him on to the next station, with his face set towards Boston. He had heard the slaveholders curse Boston so much that he concluded it must be a pretty safe place for the fugitive. Joseph Neeland, alias Joseph Holson Joseph Neeland arrived November twenty-fifth, 1853. He was a prepossessing man of twenty-six, dark complexion, and intelligent. At the time of Joseph's escape, 
he was owned by Jacob Neeland, who had fallen heir to him as part of his father's estate. Joseph spoke of his old master as having treated him pretty well, but he had an idea that his young master had a very malignant spirit, for even before the death of his old master, the heir wanted him, Joe, sold, and after the old man died, matters appeared to be coming to a crisis very fast. Even as early as November, the young despot had distinctly given Joe to understand that he was not to be hired out another year, intimating that he was to go somewhere, but as to particulars it was time enough for Joe to know them. Of course Joe looked at his master right good, and saw right through him, and at the same time saw the UGRR darkly. Daily slavery grew awfully mean, but on the other hand, Canada was looked upon as a very desirable country to emigrate to, and he concluded to make his way there as speedily as the UGRR could safely convey him. Accordingly, he soon carried his design into practice, and on his arrival, the committee regarded him as a very good subject for Her British Majesty's possessions in Canada. End of section 14. Recording by Sherry Jordan.